Let's go to the, the book of Micah in your Bibles, please. The book of Micah, the little prophet. If you are using one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seats, uh, you will find today's text on page 588. So 588 of the black Bibles that are provided. We are taking an overview of each of the minor prophets. So these short little packages, these, these power-packed books that are towards the back of our Old Testament that often get overlooked. You know, these are the ones that when someone says, turn in your Bibles to, you might have to go to the front to the index and figure out which page that's on because you're not quite sure where they are. They're an easy to, some of them are just a page or two long, but they're some very important messages from God through his prophets. And remember we said at the outset that these are not minor prophets because they're unimportant, but rather minor because their writings are short. And this morning we come to the prophet Micah. We'll be taking an overview, so I'd invite you to keep your Bibles open as we point out highlights along the way. This will be kind of the 30,000-foot view as we cover the entire book, at least the themes of it, uh, in, one, in one sitting. If anyone does not have a handout already, I want you to flag down Doug over here, and he can get you one, uh, Micah, in your Bibles. Let's just pause for a moment and ask for God's help as we consider his word. Our Lord, you have been gracious to us to provide for us truth that we would not know apart from your revelation of yourself. And as we come this morning before your word, may we be humbled by the reality that you are the God of heaven. You do what is right. You rule. I pray, Lord, that we would submit to that rule even in our hearts this morning as we approach your word. May it speak to us by your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. You ever look at the world around you and get just a little horrified by the injustices that are propagated in our world? There are injustices all around us. And especially in a, in a global age with, with the advent of technology that brings to our television screens and our, our handheld devices and our internet the, the, the things that are going on in the world, we are, we are up close and personal. We are confronted every day with things like genocide, slavery, sex trafficking, abortion, economic intimidation, abuse, cheating, stealing. We could go on and on with the things that we are bombarded with in the world around us that constitute injustice. It can, be, it can be discouraging to think about. It can be difficult to know how to react. And there's times that we cry out, does, does God notice? Does he realize what is happening? We can take comfort in knowing that these things do not escape God's notice. When injustice is propagated in the world, God sees and knows, and although he is patient, although he is long-suffering and withholds his judgment for a time, injustice will ultimately be judged. 
But we're reminded by Micah, as we were reminded by Amos, that this is not just the injustice that's propagated by others, but that God holds his own people responsible to be righteous, to act rightly towards one another, to be just. We come now to the book of Micah that emphasizes that theme, that justice will reign. And even though there may be injustices in the world around us, even though there may be a time that those who are propagating injustice get away with it, that the time will come where God, the just judge, will make things right. Injustice will not go forever. It will not be tolerated indefinitely. So we come here to the book of Micah. Micah simply means who is like the Lord. His name actually serves as the theme for the book. Who is like the Lord is is what Micah means. And so actually the, the theme of the book revolves around its namesake. It actually forms the, the climax of the book. If you go all the way to chapter 7 of the book of Micah and you look in verse 18, you see where, where we've reached the mountaintop, the peak and, and the prophet, under inspiration, says in verse 18, chapter 7, Who is a God like you? There's a little bit of, of irony there because we started the book, chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Micah, meaning, who is like the Lord? And then he reaches the climax of the book in chapter 7 by asking that very question, Who is a God like you? And, of course, the answer comes in that very verse. It's a rhetorical question that emphasizes the reality that God is unique. The, true, the one true and living God is like no other idol, is like no other false god. He's special. We will see that in our text today. Now, we don't know a lot else about Micah, except that he came, we'll see in, in chapter 1, verse 1, he came from a town called Morisheth, um, perhaps most famous because it is near Gad. It is about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem, near the Philistine city of Gath. And you may recognize the city of Gath because there is someone well-known, infamous even, from the city of Gath, and that's the giant Goliath that David took down with his slingshot. Micah preached to the kingdom of Judah, so this would be the southern kingdom after there was a break between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And you remember that we said, and especially if you look at your chart and it's all color-coded and everything, remember that we said that the northern kingdom was consistently bad, that there was uh, uniformly kings that defied God, that did things their own way, that propagated idolatry. The southern kingdom, Judah, of course, was a mixed bag. There were some good kings, there were some bad kings, there were some that started bad and turned good, there were some that started good and turned bad. And so Judah is more of a mixed bag, but it was, it was the, the kingdom that at least retained some sense of true worship of Yahweh, Jehovah. Micah preached to Judah. Now, the, the timing of the book is particularly important as you think about the context 
Remember, it's always important to think about the context of a book as you read it. And so the dating of the book is, is given to us in the very beginning, in the introduction, because it, his writings, his prophecy occurs under the kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So the prophecy is dated from 735 to 710 BC. Now, why is that important? Why is it relevant to know where this prophet is placed in time? Well, the previous king, probably that overlapped with Micah in his life, but occurred before the prophecy of Micah, prior to that was King Uzziah, whose rule came to an end in 739. The thing that you want to know about Uzziah is this. Under his rule, Judah had enjoyed a time of unprecedented prosperity. The, the, the rulership of Uzziah was a great time for the land of Judah. They had seen prosperity that was, that was strong, that was rich, that was great. And, and Uzziah was one who followed after God. This would have been about the time of Isaiah's prophecy. Because you may remember that Isaiah's opening words are, in the, king that, excuse me, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. So, a good ruler, a godly ruler, a prosperous ruler, a, a kind of second golden age in Judah. It was, a, it was a wonderful time, a prosperous time, but Uzziah had passed off the scene and he was succeeded by his son, Jotham, in, in 739. Now, in general, Jotham followed after his father's policies. Unfortunately, he allowed idolatry. He allowed the centers of idolatry to be built in the land of Judah. He did not put a stop to the false worship in the land. And so corruption began to creep in under Jotham's reign. After the fall of Samaria in 721, religious syncretism worsened. You know what syncretism is? It is, it is the attempt to assimilate two disparate forms of worship, two different religions, to, to mix them together into some what really becomes a new religion. And so as the refugees from Israel moved into Judah, there was increased idolatry. Some of the idolatry was performed in the name of Yahweh, but it was not what God had commanded. It was a violation of true worship. The people began to ascribe to even more decadence. This corruption that had begun worsened. The people had become comfortable with prosperity and tolerated injustice. They tolerated corruption because that was what continued them in their comfort. Now, there's a warning to us in that. When we are comfortable, yea, even when we are comfortable economically, there is a temptation to become lethargic spiritually, to not be on guard against the character flaws that we are prone to. And when a society as a whole 
is comfortable and wealthy. There's a temptation towards corruption and injustice. We are blessed greatly in the United States to live in the 1%, right? I've mentioned this before. People, people talk about the 1%, and ironically, the people who have time on their hands to stand out with signs protesting the 1% are themselves, unbeknownst to them apparently, in the 1%. If you can feed yourself and you have that kind of time on hand, you are in the wealthiest bracket globally. And in fact, historically, you are doing very well. We are blessed to have wealth that we don't even recognize around us. Round Rock is a wealthy city. I mean, you just look at the economic state, uh, position that we sit in as an area. You look at the average income. You look at the average job. You look at the average uh, house in our area, and we are tremendously blessed. Let me just announce to us that there is a temptation that comes with comfort and wealth. The people of Judah had succumbed to that temptation. They had not treated others fairly. In fact, in order to preserve the wealth, they began to mistreat those who were less fortunate than them. They began to violate the commands that had been given under the Mosaic law about how they were to care for their brothers and sisters in Israel. The people had become comfortable and that had led them to corruption to injustice that was being propagated. Some of you use a MacArthur Study Bible. I think he's got a good little outline for the um, breakdown of the book. It really can be divided easily into three sections, uh, chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3, 4, and 5, and chapters 6 and 7. Uh, there are different commentators that you know, have different headings on each of those, but that's basically the breakdown of the book. I want us to emphasize some themes that we see come in into play here in the book of Micah and apply those to our own situation. The first theme that we want to highlight is that God judges his people righteously. God judges his people righteously. Now, Micah was giving a message that God would judge his people for their injustice. We said in the introduction that, that we have a tendency to look at others who are propagating injustice and, and just kind of pat ourselves on the back. But, but Micah is bringing this message home to the people. Now, it was, it was an unwelcome message. Look in chapter 2, verse 6. They called him, they called the true prophets a ranting prattler. That's not a compliment. Quit running your mouth, Mr. Prophet. This is not... A, a message that is welcome. Go, go prophesy against the Assyrians. Go prophesy against Israel. Don't tell us that we're wrong. The message to God's people was that God will judge injustice. He will judge unrighteousness. He will judge those that violate His law. 
And that's not just a message for the other nations. It is a message for his own people. Here's the interesting thing, that even as Micah preached, while he was preaching, the, Syrian, the Assyrian army was already on the move. They were advancing. You'll see this in chapter 1, verses 8 through 16. Micah actually names, if you scan down there, you'll begin to see names of cities. Starts in, in verse 10. Gath, Beth Aphram, uh, Shafir, Zanan, right? He goes down, he's naming cities. Now, you say, okay, he's naming cities. What's the significance of that? If you plot them on the map, they are a road map to Jerusalem. I mean, this is the path that the Assyrian army will follow on their way to Jerusalem. And in verse 9, this is how he introduces it. Her words are incurable. It has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. This is ominous. Micah the prophet is saying that judgment is on its way and it literally is on horseback on its way as he prophesies it. And so Micah mourns. He wails for the house of Judah to demonstrate the people needed to avert God's wrath in chapter 1. Rather than resting easy in their beds, rather than devising new ways to work wickedness, this is the language that he uses, rather than listening to the comforting words of their false prophets, the people needed to wake up. They needed to realize this this wake-up call that Micah was calling out. They needed to repent. They needed to turn from their wicked ways. Micah culminates this case against Judah. In the closing chapters of the book, he's actually depicting a court case. The imagery that he uses, the language that he uses, is as if a court session is being called where God is the prosecutor against Israel. So in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, he, he says, For I brought you from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. He's building the case. Look at all the good I did for you. Look at how I cared for you. Yet, he goes on to prosecute the case that his people have despised. They have rebelled. They have violated the covenant that was made under Moses. And in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 8, is perhaps the most well-known, or at least one of the most well-known verses in the prophet Micah. This is what we read together for our call to worship, but I want to back up to chapter 6, verse 6, to give us some context. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Right? So, so what, what should you do, Judah? What do you need to do to make this right with God? Is God calling for sacrifices? And then he, he uses hyperbole. He goes even above and beyond, far above and beyond what the law requires. Verse 7, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? 
Even take the most extreme. Even take the example of what the pagan gods call for, verse 7. This is not what God requires, but this is, this is so far and above. This is even tantamount to what the pagans would do. Shall I bring my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What will justify us before God? What religious deeds can we do that will, that will earn God's favor? And then notice what he says in verse 8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? The people were certainly to keep the sacrificial system that had been handed down in the Mosaic Covenant. But that is not what God is saying He wants from His people. What He's saying He wants from His people is hearts that are attuned to keep the law, to love Him and to love others. And doesn't this sound like the words of Jesus? Right? He's confronted with what is the, what is the first and great commandment, and He says, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And the second is like to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. By this, all the law is summarized. Mike is saying essentially the same thing. Certainly, there's a sacrificial system that points us forward to a Savior. But love God and love your fellow man. What is he required of us? To love justice, to love mercy, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. In an effort to try to gain his favor, the people have offered him external rituals in the place of a heart that is right with him. Religion failed to meet what God had required to live justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. This is a timeless message, is it not? Because just as God required Judah of old, this is the same things that are required of us as New Testament believers to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. And so there is much in verse 8 that is powerful for us even today. Is anyone else warm? I think it's warm in here. Ryan, if you would address... If I'm warm, then I know it's warm. And so this timeless message in verse 8 carries through even to us today. It is important to note that the last of these commandments really deals with the heart, to walk humbly with our God. And in fact, we can't have the first two without that last one, can we? There was a research study that was reported recently at the site uh, Live Science. The editor, the reporter in this case, uh, Laura Gegel, reports under this headline, quote, Atheists and believers have different moral compasses, unquote. Really? Now, isn't that an interesting bit of research? The report goes on to say this, in some respects, the moral compass was incredibly aligned between the two groups, that is, those who believe in God and those who are atheists. Both highly rated fairness 
and protected the well-being of vulnerable people. For instance, both highly endorsed liberty but not oppression. But the report goes on to say this, the group diverged when it came to matters of group cohesion such as valuing loyalty and respecting authority. This next sentence is very interesting. The research shows that contrary to public perception, atheists do have a moral compass, right? Don't ever make the argument that an atheist can't have a moral compass. The, re the reality of it is they do have a moral code. That's called the image of God in man. And even someone who denies the existence of God still bears within himself the very proof that he denies. So it's not, a, it's not a solid argument to say atheists are not moral people because many of them are indeed in some respects moral. The research actually backs this up. Contrary to public perception, atheists do have a moral compass, but compared with believers, their compass is differently calibrated. And the research goes on to note that believers and atheists differ in three areas in respect to morality. Authority loyalty, and sanctity. Isn't that interesting? Authority. Well, let's take that one for just a moment. Authority. Those who believe in God, and specifically Bible-believing Christians, believe that there is an authority, a transcendent authority that dictates morality. And so, yes, the entire moral code of a believer is informed by this concept of authority. In fact, let's just say it this way. If there is no authority, there is no objective reason for morality. And it's not, again, to say that the one who does not believe in God can't exercise morality, but, but, but logical consistency tells us that there's nothing above a human level that we can appeal to. The other one that's interesting that they mention is sanctity. I mean, the very root of that word is related to our word sacred. Sanctified. Holy. Yes, there is a dramatic difference in the way God's people relate to one another because of this concept that there are certain things that are sacred. The research actually keys in on the reality that those who believe in God tend towards, they trend towards sexual morality because of the concept of sanctity. In other words, this act that is created by God is sacred, which again goes back to the idea of authority. Life, for example, that, that those who are, are humanity bears the, the resemblance of God, the image of God in themselves, and therefore life is sacred. Micah actually taps into this reality when he reminds us, and it's a powerful reminder for us as well, that this is about God. How we treat one another how we act towards each other. The justice that we perform or fail to perform really relates to what we believe about God. And the very name of the prophet is who is like the Lord. And who God is should inform everything we do. So what has he required of us? He has required the same, to, to do justice, to treat others rightly to love mercy, to exercise the kind of love, the kind of grace, 
kind of mercy that has been extended to us towards others, but above all, to walk humbly with our God. The answer to our temptation to mistreat others is an understanding of God's character. And we must walk humbly with our God. Without a Godward accountability, there is ultimately no grounds for ethical obligation to others. Now, we may not be guilty of the quote-unquote big injustices that we tend to think about, but the reality is that you and I are tempted every day towards other injustices, ones that may not capture our attention, cheating on taxes, racism, taking advantage of those under our authority, taking advantage of those who are in authority over us, disrespecting leaders and rulers, failing to afford the proper respect to others that we interact with daily. I mean, what vestiges of injustice do you and I harbor this morning? Where is your heart inclined in respect to how you treat other people? This is a message that Micah gives to God's very people. It's not just the pagan nations that are on the hook for their injustices, but God calls His own people to a standard of righteousness informed by their knowledge of God. Well, I'm happy to tell you that Micah's message was finally heeded, actually, by a king named Hezekiah. The Assyrian army, led by King Sennacherib, besieged Jerusalem in 701 B.C. If you want to read the story, you'll find it in 2 Kings 18 and 19. You'll find it in 2 Chronicles 32. So Hezekiah the king repents, and God delivers his people. He spared them from the fate that had already befallen Israel. Now, the deliverance was only a reprieve because judgment would ultimately fall on Judah a century and a half later, in 586 B.C. So they would repent under the preaching of Micah. They would then again fall away, and God would judge. But ultimately, God restores His people. And that's another thing that comes through, really, in all the prophets, but we'll, we'll highlight it this morning in the book of Micah, that God restores His people because He loves them. Remember this concept of loyal love, this chesed that we've talked about before in the Hebrew? This concept that God loves His people and will pursue them lovingly. He's loyal. In every section of the book, there are three main sections, in every section of the book, Micah comes back after the judgment of God, and reminds Judah that God has not forsaken His promises. That God will keep His promise to the nation. One day He will restore them. Look at chapter 4. Look at the first few verses there in that chapter. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. 
Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. What does this sound like to you? Like those of you that were here for our covenant series, what does this sound like to you? Hmm? It's the new covenant, right? And, and Micah the prophet comes back and says, now look, God's going to judge you. You've forsaken him. Judgment is coming. But God hasn't forgotten. God has not utterly cast you aside. He still intends to keep his promise. Even though we are faithless, God is still faithful. I wonder, does that encourage you this morning? To know that God restores. That God does not forget. And as he's made a promise to his people Israel, so too he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Do those words from the New Testament sound similar to Micah's message? That when we confess, when we repent, when we come to him, he restores us. He makes us right again. God loves to restore his people and he does, through, does so through forgiveness. So really the, the, the primary theme, Micah's theological emphasis, centers around God's character. And we said at the outset, the whole theme of the book is God isn't like any other God. The true God is not like any false God. And I only read part of the verse, right? Chapter 7, look in verse 18. Who is a God like you? It's a rhetorical question. There's nobody like God. But in what respect does Micah say God is unique? Pardoning iniquity passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Now think about it. Micah is called to announce judgment. But how does his prophecy end? With the reminder that God forgives, that God restores, that he delights in mercy for those who come humbly before him, that he does not retain his anger forever. God is a restoring God. And oh, can we not be encouraged this morning with this promise that God provides forgiveness. And doesn't this lead us to the gospel? Doesn't this lead us to the reality of how God performed this work, that he was just and he was right, yet his, his justice was poured out on another for our behalf? Tucked away in this little book in, in chapter 5, verse 2, is a verse that we hear around Christmas time, don't we? 
But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. And verse 2 is about whom? It's about Jesus. And so even in the prophecy that foretells Judah's destruction, even in the announcement of judgment, is the hope that a Savior will come. This Savior will provide for the sins of mankind. In Him we can have forgiveness of sin and right relationship with God, but it doesn't end there. He's also going to rule. And the description that we find in chapter 7 of this rule of peace where they beat their, their swords into plowshares and where people do not study war anymore, where, where people are not fighting, where there's a world of peace, it's because the Prince of Peace rules. Justice reigns. Oh, we can be so encouraged. Even in the midst of Micah's prophecy of judgment, we can be encouraged that there is one who brings peace, one who brings forgiveness. Our God is compassionate. He loves to forgive. And so I wonder this morning, have you ever embraced the forgiveness that is found in the gospel? Has there ever been a time where you have recognized that you cannot save yourself? That you, as the Bible says, are separated from God because of your sin. Because of your own tendency towards injustice. Your own tendency towards breaking from God's law. That every one of us are guilty and that no religious deed can undo that. Just like Micah says to the people, it doesn't matter if you bring uh, rivers of oil and thousands of sacrifices. If you do all the right religious things, they, they amount to nothing. Have you ever realized that? Have you ever recognized your own inadequacy, your own inability to get to God? Well, my friend, if you recognize that this morning, today is the day to turn from self to repent of your sin and your own self-dependence and depend on Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation. If you're here or you're watching this by video and there's never been a time where you've repented of your sin, where you've been forgiven and made in right relationship with God, we would cherish the opportunity to talk with you, to sit down with the Bible, to answer your questions and to, to help you understand what the Bible says about having a relationship with God. Perhaps you have done that. Perhaps you've been, as the Bible calls it, born again. There's been a time that you've repented of sin, dependent on Jesus Christ alone, and you've been, you've been saved. Do you understand this morning that our, our Christian walk is full of repentance? We're not just believers because we repented once. We are saved once and for all, but that now we live in the light of that gospel. And that every, every time our heart goes astray, every time our actions fall into the habits of our flesh, that forgiveness is ready. Forgiveness is provided because of the work of Jesus Christ that you and I can be restored. And so many Christians, we have this tendency, to, I don't want to come to God. I don't want to come before God. I, I'm so ashamed. I'm so embarrassed. And the beauty is that it is not about us. It is about a marvelous, forgiving God who loves to grant mercy, 
who loves to bring his people in right relationship with God. Who is a God like God? There's no other. He's rich in mercy. He pardons iniquities. And this morning I wonder in what ways should you celebrate in your heart that God forgives. Even perhaps this morning through this worship time, through the preaching of the word, you've recognized some failure, some sin that needs to be turned from, that needs to be repented of. Will you turn from that? Do you have a habit of, of regular repentance? Of regular, regularly searching your own heart, allowing the Holy Spirit to point out those things that you should turn from, that you should repent of, that you must seek forgiveness for. Oh, this morning, I would invite you to rejoice with me that we serve a God like no other. He's rich in mercy. He longs to forgive. Who is a God like God? Father, we thank you for these moments that we've had in your word. We pray that you would continue to use them in our hearts, even this week as we go our separate ways. We pray that you would remind us often of your word. We thank you for this prophet, the reminders of it this morning. Allow us to be humbled before you and to walk humbly with our God. I'm going to give you a moment to remain bowed before the Lord, to repent of sin, to turn to him, to ask for strength in response to the word this morning.